Welcome in, everybody, to the Deep Dive. It is Wednesday. It is 7.30 p.m., and I'm so glad that you are here on the channel, Tim Hatch Live, youtube.com slash Tim Hatch Live. If you have never been here before and you'd like to subscribe, click the button, the notification bell, the thumbs up button for a like. So glad that you're here. We are in, finally, <laughs> Second Kings. I mean, it's part, what, 22? Yeah, we're in part 22 of this study. There we go. And we are finally in the second book of the record of Israel's kings as Israel and Judah to the south descend into cultural and moral decay. So we're turning a page, um, not just textually in going from 1 Kings to 2 Kings, we are also turning a page uh, in terms of the prophetic ministry. We're going to look at two chapters, the first two chapters of 2 Kings, because I believe they tie together to a picture that we've got to understand is imperative to the times in which we live. Because what we're going to see in these first two chapters is two things. We're going to see the kingdom of Israel in the north getting worse and worse. You thought it couldn't get worse under Ahab, but it gets worse under his son. And then you're going to see in chapter two, a transitionary moment from Elijah's ministry to Elisha's ministry. And those two men uh, give us a picture of what it takes to pass on the faith to the next generation. So we addressed this a while back, maybe about four or five episodes ago, when we were talking about Elisha's call, when, when Elijah just kind of walks by and throws his cloak on Elisha and then just leaves. I think that's First uh, Kings 19. Well, now we're going to actually look at the culmination of Elijah's ministry, followed by the inauguration of Elisha's ministry. And... These chapters are imperative for this reason. The times in which we live right now have a biblical precedent in the times of Elijah and Elisha. I have been saying from the get-go through the Kings of Compromise study that what we are seeing now, we have seen before. So if we can read these texts in 1 and 2 Kings, we can, have, um, we can, we can gain spiritual insight into how to, how to approach these seasons. Very difficult seasons to be uh, a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. It's very easy to be a nominal follower, but it's very difficult to be a strong, committed follower of Jesus Christ. Elisha sets the precedent for how do you stay strong in the midst of cultural decay. And that's actually what I've titled this talk, um, Thriving in an Age. Uh, thriving in an age of denying God or thriving in an age where everybody's denying God. And, and that's really the, the, um, the teaching of first, second Kings chapter one and two, the Northern kingdom of Israel is in a spiritual decline. They're, they're spiritually bankrupt. They're uh, declining morally, geopolitically, their Kings are corrupt. There's rampant immorality and the need for godly men and women prophets, if you will, is more desperate than ever. Uh, in this in this book. And so today, don't we find ourselves in the very same way? Don't we find ourselves in the very same season spiritually? Christianity, not illegal by any stretch of the imagination, but being marginalized more and more. There is, I would call a passive assault on cultural Christianity or passive assault on committed Christianity. Again, no problem with cultural Christianity is committed Christianity that the culture has a problem with. The, the country that we live in is in decay, both spiritually, morally, and geopolitically. That is a fact. That is an absolute fact. The need for godliness is increasing moment by moment. Here's what I want every longtime saint to, to know, to, to, to lean in on. It is your job. You've, you've got an assignment. Here's the assignment. Invest in 
and pass on the faith to the younger generation. They are looking for this. I, I, I absolutely believe they, they are looking for it. They need it. It's why they go all over Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube to find someone that can speak to them the, the things that they need for their generation. They need spiritual fathers and mothers. Elisha was anointed, but he still needed education. He still needed mentorship. And there are people, if you're a longtime Christian, there are, there are people, I guarantee you, if you just ask God to open your eyes, there are people that God has brought into your life that you are supposed to mentor. You might not want to. I don't think that Elijah wanted to mentor Elisha. <laughs> so, so it's not about what you want to do. Uh, it, you've got to do it because Christianity is like one generation away from passing away all the time. To the younger generations, to those new in the faith, I got a message for you from this text. And that is, it is your job to hunt down and align yourself and stick like glue to someone who is strong in the Lord. That's exactly what we see Elisha embody in the midst of a strong cultural decline. So with all of those foundational points being made, let's dive into the text. I'm going to pray and then we'll go through the text. Father, thank you for the chance to hear your voice, your word through this scripture. Speak to us, guide us. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. Let's do Kings of Compromise. Uh, okay, thriving in an age denying God. Second Kings chapter one, verse one. After the death of Ahab. Now, again, remember, Ahab is the most wicked, vile king that Israel had ever had. He's dead. And you think, oh, good. He's, he's gone. The nation is saved. Nope. <laughs> His son is worse. And that was the last uh, verses of first Kings. So it says Moab rebelled against Israel. Now that's important because Moab at this point is a decimated nation. And yet they even have the, the impetus, the, the courage to attack Israel. When a, when a nation morally declines, even the weak enemies and the weak opponents around them will rise up against them. And that is just kind of like the picture being painted here on the first verse of second Kings chapter one. So it says Ahaziah fell through the lattice. This is again, Ahab's son, Ahaziah. He fell through the lattice in his upper chamber in Samaria and he lay sick. Now you have to put yourself in his position. He's had a serious accident. I, I don't know if you can see, this is still signs of lingering effects on my lower, below my left eye of the lingering effects of an accident that I had on an e-bike a couple of months ago, still recovering, but looking pretty good. I think, huh? what do you think? Anyway, um, I was thankful that I could go right to the emergency room. But you think about Ahaziah, he's got, he falls through the lattice. By the way, only rich people had these lattices in the upper chamber, second floors of their houses, where they could kind of like have this closed in lattice structure and close in themselves and have privacy. It would kind of be like a, a porch today. Um, and that's what Ahaziah does because he's the king. But he must have leaned too close, fell through it. And he's, I don't know, broken legs, broken arms, he's sick. No emergency rooms, no hospitals, no nothing. So he sends messengers. He sends messengers telling them, go inquire of, now look at this, Baal Zebub. Baal Zebub. Uh, that is the Lord, the word Baal Zebub means Lord of the Flies. Now, Baal Zebul is the Prince of Baal. Um, and yet the writer writes Baal Zebub. I guarantee you that Ahaziah said Baal Zebul, meaning Prince of Baal. But the writer who wrote Second Kings wrote Beelzebub to mock that false god and call him Lord of the Flies. You might think he's in charge. 
but he's just a gnat. He's just a gnat god. He's not. He's not real. And it says the god of Ekron. That is another uh, key element here. The god of Ekron. Ekron was one of the five cities of the Philistines. So it's amazing that spiritual decline goes back to the worship of the, god, of the uh, nations that God had driven out through, uh, of Israel through David. The Philistines were thoroughly de- defeated under David. And now the, the king of Israel, you know, this, this kind of half <laughs> genealogical descendant of David, spiritually speaking, not, not biologically speaking, is now going back to those gods. We see that in our culture, going back to the gods of those who were before us. One of the pushes that we see culturally right now in our country is this idea that the land was stolen from Native Americans. And so we need to honor and sanctify certain spaces because Native Americans own those lands. And I heard about this from a professor at the University of uh, Arizona, Arizona University, that in some of the classes at Arizona University, this is what they're doing now. They are asking students, and I kid you not, this is true, asking students to acknowledge that the land that they are learning on is stolen land, colonized land, they would call it, but stolen land from the Native Americans, and they need to recognize before they teach, before they start the class, they need to recognize the gods of those nations, the gods of those tribes, and so they ask the students to bow their head and close their eyes as the teacher, I don't know, <laughs> incants the, uh, the, the, the spirits of those tribes. This is what America and this land was before Christianity <laughs> swept across this land through British colonialism, yes, and also through the evangelism of the First and Second Great Awakenings that largely Christianized this country. We're going backwards. We're going back to the false gods that were here before us, before Christianity was a pervasive influence in America. And these things are a reality that we're living through right now. What we see happening in first and second Kings happens now. It's amazing to see the parallels. So he doesn't go to the God of Israel. He goes to the God of the nations that were driven out before Israel got there. And he says, now, can I, can I to ask those gods, will I recover from the sickness? Let's go back to the text. Verse three. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria, and say to them, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are going to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron? Now therefore, says the Lord, you shall not come down from the bed on which you have gone up, or to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So Elijah went. This is the last thing that Ahaziah wanted to hear. <laughs> but Elijah does not spare him any facts. You're going to die. And the question, which will be asked three times in this chapter, is important. Is, is it because there is no God in Israel? This is a test for every Christian. Where do you go to when you, quote unquote, fall through the lattice of your upper chamber, when things go poorly? And I want to suggest this right off the bat. Wherever you go, when things are terrible, is your God or whomever you turn to when things are terrible is your God. So for many people, it's alcohol because alcohol is an escape or it gives them courage or it gives them, I don't know, pleasure and boldness. Uh, it's drugs for some people. It's medical prescriptions for some people. It's friends. It's social media. It's endless things that you can go to when the chips are down. You never go wrong when you get down on your knees before God. 
And really, discipleship is about that. It's about saying, I am not going to turn to these empty, vain things of this world when things are bad for me. I am not going to talk to my cousin who is three times divorced when my marriage is going poorly. I'm going to talk to my God, right? Whoever you turn to or wherever you go in the midst of your distress is your functional savior. And if it is not the savior, it is a disaster waiting to happen. And that is what we see here embodied in the life of Elijah. Um, uh, Ahaziah, Ahaziah. Elijah sends him a message and says, no, there's a God in Israel and you, you forgot about it. Okay, let's move on. First uh, Kings chapter one, verse, second Kings chapter one, verse five. The messengers returned to the king and, and he said to them, why have you returned? He didn't expect him to be back, be back so quickly. And they said to him, there came a man to meet us and said to us, go back to the king who sent to you and say to him, this, thus says the Lord, and there it is repeated for the second time, is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron? Therefore, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. He said to them, what kind of man was he who came to meet you and told you these things? They answered him, he wore a garment of hair, hair uh, with a belt of leather around his waist. And he said, it is Elijah the Tishbite. Now, these elements of Elijah's clothing are important. For, for, for one, we know that Elijah is a prefigure of John the Baptist because John the Baptist will wear um, a coat of camel's hair and a leather belt. And he will also eat locusts and wild honey. He'll be a, a very visually Elijah type figure. And he will prefigure the coming of Jesus Christ, the anointed son of God. Uh, so to Elijah will be a prefiguring of Elisha's ministry, a Holy Spirit anointed ministry that will that will go beyond what he is able to do. But what they are what the what the text is also asking us to see is that um, Elijah is a very minimal kind of intimidating figure. Hair in the ancient world was not um, a symbol of beauty; it was a symbol of strength go back to Samson. And so this, this picture of Elijah is he's a strong man. He's an intimidating man. That's going to be important when we get to Elisha because he's a bald man. But the king is not interested in hearing from God at all. He's, he wants to hear from the Baal Zabub, Baal Zabal in his, in his terminology. He's only turning to the false gods and he's turning everywhere else but God. And Elijah pulls no punches and says, look, you're turning to the wrong things and you're going to die. And that is the reality for all people. And we need to hear that. If we do not turn to the Savior, Jesus Christ, we are destined to perish. That is the fundamental theme of John 3.16, right? Wonderful, powerful, beautiful, compassionate verse, for God so loved the world, right? But it ends with perish. If it starts with for God so loved the world, it ends with the word perish, um, or the phrase shall not perish. But the, but the difference is between perishing and God's love and eternal life is Jesus Christ, knowing him, trusting in him. Anyway, back to the text. Here's how the king responds. Verse nine. Then the king sent to him a captain of 50 men with his 50. He went up to Elijah, who was sitting on the top of the hill and said to him, O man of God, the king says, come down. Now, the reason why Ahaziah sends 50 men is because he wants to arrest Elijah. He hates Elijah, just like Ahab hated Elijah. Remember, Ahab called Elijah um, Israel's enemy. Uh, he, he was an instigator. He was a troublemaker of Israel. And Elijah says, no, you're the troublemaker. And, and that's what a, an immoral society looks like. Um, an immoral society says that godly men are troublemakers and ungodly men are good. So drag queen story hour, good um, preachers preaching the word of God, bad. That is our society. That was the society of Ahaziah and Ahab. So it says that he sends these 50 men, but Elijah answered the captain of the 50. If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. <laughs> Look at this. That fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. So the king tries to intimidate Elijah. It doesn't go well. This is always going to be the case for Christians, by the way. Can you make it through the intimidations and threats of the ungodly around you? Can you, can you last when the pressure, that when the world turns the pressure up on you? 
So Elijah doesn't need to defend himself. He says, look, if I am a man of God, let fire come down. And we know that this is one of the gifts that God has given Elijah. Fire does come down at his request and it happens. What do you do here if you're Ahaziah? <laughs> fire has just come down from heaven and consumed 50 of your men, 50 of your soldiers. <laughs> Ahaziah shows us complete stubbornness and he kind of reflects the age in which we live today. Verse 11, and again, uh, the, king sent to, uh, the king sent to him another captain of 50 men with his 50. And he answered and said to him, O man of God, this is the king's order. Come down quickly. But Elijah answered them, if I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Then the fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. I mean, this is repetitive. Like the phrase that Elijah gives to uh, Ahaziah is repetitive. So to this little back and forth with the captains and, and Elijah are repetitive. And the reason why is because it's supposed to paint us a picture. It's painting us a picture of uh, complete stubbornness in the face of truth. There's an outright hardness of heart. Parallels in previous scriptures are Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who, though he saw the 10 plagues, did not soften his heart. He hardened his heart. This is an apostate generation. This is an apostate culturalization. And this is where America is headed in many respects. An apostate generation where we will tell the truth and we will tell the truth and we will tell the truth and they will just get harder and harder and harder. Look at how our country continually responds to tragedy. Every time there's a mass shooting, guns are the problem. No, the human heart is the problem. Uh, every time there is a hurricane, it's not about helping people work their way out of the hurricane or the tragedy of the tornado or anything. It's about climate change. Um, it's no longer about, man, maybe God is trying to wake us up. You know, we get this, we get this 9-11 attack, and some of you are too young to remember this, but I, was, I had my, my first child by this time when 9-11 happened. And uh, it was amazing for me to see because I had grew up, grown, up, grown up in the 80s and the 90s. And then I saw in the early 2000s how quickly our culture had uh, become this pluralistic religious, um, you know, conflation of ideologies. And I remember like four days after the 9-11 attacks, there was a, a, a chapel service at the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C. And you had Billy Graham there. But then you had this Islamic imam and a Hindu priest and all these other false gods represented in this in this chapel service. And it was just shocking to see how quickly that transpired in our country. And what was the inevitable result? What was the immediate result? Oh, let's not, let's not be trans, let's not be Islamic phobic. Like now we've got to make sure that we play nice with Islam and try to embrace Islam and, and, you know, and comfort our Islamic brothers and sisters. And I get that for a culture and for a country because, you know, it's a diverse country, but, but it was almost like we were overextending. And instead of saying, let's see God. Okay. It's let's seek, you know, being nice with Islam. Wait a second. Jihadist Islamists just attacked us. And now we're going to embrace it more, but that is a hardened apostate culture. That's where we are. When you look at COVID-19 and the, what COVID-19 just exposed for our country, for our world, about um, how we reject science, how science has been politicized, how people have been lied to repeatedly by the quote-unquote experts. And so now today, it's almost like they're digging their, their heels in even further and saying, we need to trust the science, trust the science, science is settled, science is this, science is that. Science becomes a god. What it is, is it's a refusal to hear based on the evidence that God is God and God will send these plagues. And if you read in Amos, I think it's chapter four in Amos, when God continually says through Amos to these pagan cultures, by the way, I sent you drought, I sent you famine, I sent you disease, yet you did not return to me. I sent you enemies and attacks from foreign countries, and yet you did not return to me. And he keeps talking about all these tragedies that God allowed to come to those people. But because of the tragedies, instead of turning to God, they turn to them or they turn to all the other false gods. 
That is an apostate culture. That was what Pharaoh embodied, and that is also what Ahaziah and Ahab, the house of Omri. Remember Omri, a political figure? He's the great-grandfather of Ahaziah, and his dynasty in northern Israel was an apostate culture. No matter what tragedies happened or befell the nation, they were not going to turn to God. And that is where we are. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to America 2023. So let's go on in the text. He said two captains of 50s um, have fire come down when they tried to go and arrest Elijah and he sends a third. <laughs> he says, will not listen. So verse 13, and again, the king sent the captain of a 50 with his 50 and the third captain of the 50 went up and came and fell on his knees before Elijah and entreated him. Oh man of God, please let my life and the life of these 50 servants of yours be precious in your sight. Behold, fire came down from heaven and consumed the two former captains of 50 men with their 50s, but now let my life be precious in your sight. So this is a beautiful contrast between the first two captains. The first two captains come, guns blazing, we're going to arrest you and we're going to haul you into prison because we don't like what you say. The third one's like, no, no I'm not, I'm not going to be a fool here. You, it's kind of amazing that there is one guy out of all the captains of Ahaziah's army that's willing to do three things. He falls on his knees. That is, he humbles himself. He prays to the God of Elijah and really to, through Elijah to the God of Elijah. And then he asks for mercy. And guess what? He receives it. See, this is the thing. Even in an apostate culture, God still wants to be merciful to those who will listen. And I believe that as tragedies befall our nation repeatedly, and they will probably get worse, okay, and our nation by and large continues to refuse to repent and turns to all these other ideologies, climate change, and we need to be more accepting and more plural, more diverse, and all this you know, tribalism going back to Native American spiritualism. Even in the midst of that, there's going to be a few captains of 50 and 50 who will respond to God in um, repentance and humility. Anyway, that's that text. So Elijah is finally taken to the king uh, because it says here in verse 15, the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, go ahead and go with him. Don't be afraid. So he rose and went down with him to the king and said to him, lest says the Lord, because again, this is the third time now, because you have sent messengers to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron, is it because there is no God in Israel to inquire of his word? Therefore, you shall not come down from the bed from which you have gone up or to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. Uh, one thing about the text, the biblical text is whenever two, whenever something is repeated twice or three times, it's like certainty. That's it's, it's implying certainty. God is not going to relent. In the New Testament, Jesus talks about by the mouth of two or three witnesses shall all things be established. Sometimes the the mouth of two or three witnesses is the same mouth is repeated in the text to illustrate that this must this is now a firm decision on God's part. And we see that in the last two verses of First Kings chapter Second uh, Kings chapter one. So he died. Ahaziah the king died according to the word of the Lord that Elijah had spoken. Jehoram became king in his place in the second year of Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, because Ahaziah had no son. Now the rest of the acts of Ahaziah uh, that he did, are they not written in the books, book of Chronicles of the kings of Israel? So you have this final scene of the dynasty of Omri, which again, he's the, the patriarch of the house of Ahab, this immoral dynasty that takes over the northern kingdom of Israel. Again, remember this. This is so important that you get this. Omri was a terrific politician and totally spiritually bankrupt. And so were his son and grandson and great-grandsons. You can have a, 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 a suave political leader who is spiritually bankrupt. And the problem in those context, context is this the suave political skills of your leader will lead your country into prosperity financially or economically, but will undermine the spiritual uh, component necessary to 
to regard that prosperity properly. So you can have prosperity and a spirit of greed, a spirit of victim mentality, a spirit of um, uh, hatred and animosity for each other and a spirit of obsession with with that money or that increase and not know how to handle it. And that is just, again, the way that we see more often than not nations fall. Nations do not typically fall into apostasy because they are ravaged with hunger and poverty. They usually fall into apostasy because they are blessed and they have no spiritual underlayment to sustain their blessing because they worship the blessings instead of the blessor. That's where Israel got to at the end of first Kings and now definitely in the beginning of second Kings and Ahaziah is dead. The last King of the Omri dynasty, this political powerhouse, but spiritually bankrupt dynasty gone and things are darker, right? Look at what Elijah's facing. Let's just take a time out before we get to chapter two. He has had to face the animosity of Ahab and Jezebel, remember, he ran from his, for his life from Jezebel's threats. He has had to watch as Ahab has demoralized the nation through his own greed and lust and stealing Naboth's vineyard and um, all those kind of things. And then you also have this picture where he is uh, uh, in league with his, uh, Judah, Judah's king. We talked about this last episode and um, hates the prophets of God. And he has these false prophets on the payroll to tell him what he wants to hear. And so he's got this false spirituality, this false, quote unquote, Christianity and tells him exactly what he wants to hear. Gives him just positive feedback all the time. Go and be victorious. And there's one prophet who stands for the Lord and all this stuff. And, and Elijah has had to watch this happen to his nation as he is devoted to God. And Elijah's kind of a loner, right? He doesn't really hang around in the city. He doesn't uh, spend much time in public places. And even with Elisha, he's kind of aloof because that's what he's like. He's that kind of guy. That's going to be important for a moment. But Elijah is a loner but a spiritual strong man. He's watched this and then he's been confronted with not just Ahab, not just Jezebel, but three different um, battalions, 50 member battalions of soldiers that have come to arrest him because of his commitment to the Lord. The, this is amazing that there's an Elijah figure in every generation in spite of the increased wickedness of that generation. And I believe that this happens on a regular basis. When does Isaiah rise up? Well, he rises up in the midst of the apostasy of the Southern Kingdom. That's his ministry to the Southern Kingdom because the Northern Kingdom is going to be handed over to the Assyrians pretty soon. Southern Kingdom lasts for about another 150 years um, because of God's promise to David. And Isaiah doesn't arise and show up under the scene until that apostasy starts to take place. Well, Elijah doesn't really show up to the scene until this apostasy starts happening in the house of Omri. So you have great, strong spiritual figures, okay, when culture gets more spiritually dark. Here's what I mean by that. Here's what I mean to say by all, saying all that. When you look at your culture deteriorating, Please understand that God is looking for people who are sold out to him. He is going to use people tremendously who are sold out to him. Here is our great hope in the midst of a spiritual decline in our country that now is the time to really dig in your heels, not with culture, but with, but with Christ, with the word of God, with the Holy Spirit. Now is your chance to shine brighter. The darker the world gets, the lighter the bright, brightness of the light. I mean, this is a beautiful picture for us. And God has always had someone reserved for him in every declining generation. This past Sunday, I shared with us the story of John Wesley, who really came to the fore in evangelicalism in Britain in the 1700s. 
and he would preach to the streets because the church was, wouldn't let him in because he was too radical. He's too devoted to Christ. He was an Elijah type figure. So he'd go to the streets and preach and they would throw bricks at his head. And, they, and even when the bricks were thrown at him and killed somebody else, he kept preaching. And, and, and this one funny story I shared with my church on Sunday, which is he went like three days without being having a brick thrown at his head. And he thought he had backslid because nobody was attacking him anymore. You know, God has always got an Elijah figure, a John Wesley figure, you know, um, and, and a St. Augustine figure. St. Augustine saved the church from apostasy, from Pelagianism in the fourth century. And he stood alone. Martin Luther stood alone against the abuses of the papacy and the sale of indulgences uh, and the abuse of the priesthood uh, and, and, and stood alone. Um, you think about William Tyndale and, and these translators of the Bible into the modern tongue, into the common tongue for the, for the, for the discipleship of the, uh, the ignoble people, the normal laity. And they were attacked and vilified and, and denounced. But God had them there in those seasons to stand strong in the midst of a dark generation. That is where we are. So here's where you might be. And you might think, okay, so what's, you're not really helping me out here to know how terrible my times are, but I am because chapter two introduces us to how we get strong in the Lord as the darkness starts to overwhelm the world. This is not a time. And I've said this many, many times on this channel. This is not a time to be half-hearted Christian, uh, nominally Christian foot in the world, foot in the Lord's house. Those Christians are, I don't know if you're watching what I'm watching, but those, those Christians have been just plucked, plucked right out. Remember Jesus says in John 15, every tree, every branch that bears fruit, my father prunes. Well, the pruning is taking away people who were nominally attached to the church, but they were just not producing fruit and God takes them away so that the branch can be more fruitful. Sometimes church decline in numbers produces a purity of faith within that church or local assembly that actually will inevitably bear more fruit in the following generation. I think that's where the um, American church is. And I was just listening to another preacher describe how his church has walked through the last three years and it feels exactly the same way as my church, which is uh, about 40% of his church is in the church only for the last three years, which is COVID brought them in. But his church is about the same size as it was before COVID happened. So what has happened? A great replacement. God pruned away people who were nominally attached to the church before COVID. And he replaced them with people who are much more devoted in the midst of COVID. And those people probably will bear much more fruit in that church's future. And I have seen that in our church. I don't know if you've seen that in your church or, or if you're experiencing the same thing. But I think that's how God works. I know that's how God works because Jesus describes it in John chapter 15. So the question is this. How do I get stronger in the Lord? How do I become that Elisha type figure in the midst of a darkening culture? Well, 2 Kings chapter 2, and that's why these chapters go together. So verse 1, 2 Kings 2. Now, when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. Let's stop right there. Uh, Gilgal is mentioned here, important, important city, because in Gilgal, Gilgal, you go back to Joshua chapter 5, and it's where Joshua circumcises the men who are of the next generation that will go in to possess the promised land after the previous generation died in the wilderness. So you can go back there, you can read it for yourself, but what God says is take flint knives and circumcise the men and say, now you're ready to go in to take possession. And what Gilgal represents is in Joshua's day, and now here is a picture of the transference from one generation to another. Let me show you a couple more things about this. Elijah and Elijah, very different people. Elijah is a loner. You're going to see that Elisha loves to dwell amongst the people and with the cities. Uh, Elijah 
Harry, Elisha, bald. Um, Elijah, he is, um, you know, he's like that distant kind of guy who stands for Christ alone. And Elisha is kind of like the cooperative, let's work together, let's build a place together. You can see that tremendously in Elisha's life. Here's the point. Generations don't have to be the same. Spiritual generations do not have to be the same. They, they can be different. And I almost think that the generation that came before me in the church was very much more like of an Elijah figure generation where the guy stood alone. The guy was the man of God and he did everything himself and he you know, went, every, went, to, went to every hospital visit and prayed for every family and dedicated every house and every baby. And my generation was like, no, I don't want to do that. I'd rather have other people help me out with that so we can spread the work of Jesus farther than one guy. And then I even look at the generation coming up underneath me and it's amazing to see how much more of a team camaraderie spirit that they have, which is really exciting. Not to say that the Elijah generation is bad and the Elisha generation is better, although you will see that the Elisha generation actually produces far more fruit and produces twice as many miracles as the Elijah generation, which I think testifies to the fact that we need to spread the wealth when it comes to the anointing of the Lord and the, and the purposes of God and the responsibility of God to a team and not just an individual. But that being said, if we don't have Elijah's, we won't get Elisha's. So thank God for the Elijahs, these, these solo artists, these loners, these maverick missionaries, right, who come and establish the work. And then thank God for the transitions to the Elisha's generations. And if you take nothing else from this talk at this point, then just take this. Who, whoever was an influence for you in the Lord when you came into faith, you do not have to be exactly like them for your generation. In fact, if you do that, you might impede your progress and your productivity in your generation because you're too busy trying to be like the other generation. God has not asked Elisha to be like Elijah. God needs Elisha to be like Elisha, just anointed. And the same is true for you. God is not asking you to imitate those who came before you exactly in, in, their, in their personality, in their persona, in their presentation. But he is asking you to imitate their faith in your generation and do it in the way that you want to do it. Lead in the way that you want to lead for your generation. And it's okay. And I love the fact that, back to the text, that you've got Elijah and Elisha at Gilgal and they are walking together. They are walking together. We need Elijah generation and Elisha generation people to work together. No more. Christians, listen, young Christians especially, do not demonize those who came before you. I know this is very trendy. Everything before you was racist. That's what the culture thinks. Everything that before you know you were born was evil and hideous and bigoted and wrong side of history and, and all that kind of stuff. But you need to have a great honor and respect for those who came before you. They fought battles to get you to where you are. Honor them, Okay. That's just verse one. Let's get to verse two. And Elijah said to Elisha, please stay here for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. Now, right, right there, you see that that's the loner spirit of Elijah. Uh, I don't need you to come anymore, Elisha. I'm just going to go to Bethel. And uh, what Elijah is going to do here is he's going to visit the schools of the prophets that he started. He started these schools and he was kind of like an itinerant ministry and he was dealing with Ahab and the wickedness of the king and the, and the, and the queen. But now he's going back to his schools that he started because you need a generation to uh, you need to uh, pass the work of the Lord onto the next generation. And that is, to Elijah's great credit, what he did. And so he's going back to these schools. He's going to go to three schools in the text. The first one's Bethel. And he's like, okay, Elijah, enough is enough. I got to go do some, you know, itinerant ministry at the schools that I've started. So you stay here. Loner spirit. I don't need you to follow me. Okay, listen, listen quickly. Young Christians, listen, listen. Don't listen to them when they say, when they, when they, say they want to be alone. <laughs> Well, I mean, to an extent, you've got to give them the, their private time and their prayer time and, and don't go harass your pastor or your, or, your, or your mentor in the faith. But you're going to have to do exactly what Elisha does here. Younger Christians, listen. He says, as, 
as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. In other words, I am not going anywhere with you. So they, without you. So they went down to Bethel. I love Elijah, Elisha's spirit here. I'm not going to let you just tell me to stay here. I, I, I believe that there's something that you've got to give me and I'm going to go with you no matter what it takes. Sometimes that's the way that the Lord works with you to see if you are uh, truly into the work of the Lord. He'll, he'll give you an Elijah that doesn't really like reach out to you. So you've got to reach out to them. Look, if you're looking for a mentor, go find one. Go find a mentor that you can see is producing fruit and they love the Lord and Jesus is number one in their life and you've got to reach out to them. Young women, you've got to find someone. Young men, you've got to find these people so that you can become stronger in the Lord. You need mentors. They may not come find you. You might have to go find them. So three, three schools that were started by Elijah, he's going to go back and, and make the circuit trip to these three schools. Let me show you them. And I'm, I've kind of given them a euphemism here. The University of Bethel, the University of Jericho, and the University of Jordan. And all three schools are a picture of where God wants to lead us as we get strong, stronger in the Lord in a generation that is apostatizing, an apostate, an apostate generation. So let's go to verse three in the, back, in, in the chapter. And the sons of the prophets who were in Bethel, now they arrive at Bethel and the, and the prophets, the school of the prophets, they come out. They came out to Elijah and they said to him, do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he said, yes, I know it, keep it quiet. Elijah doesn't want to hear that Elijah is about to leave. And this is, you know, the prophets can see it. Elijah has probably hinted at it. Elisha knows because he's got the prophetic ministry anointing on him. And the prophets, the school of prophets have their anointed ministry. So they all understand that Elijah is not long for this world. And it's going to happen today. And Elijah's like, no, I'm not going to go anywhere. Now, he goes to the school of what? Let's go back to the text. The sons of the prophets who are in where? Bethel. Bethel means house of God. Do you know where Bethel gets its name from? Gets his name, the city gets his name from a guy named Jacob. Jacob was the trickster in Isaac's family. So you have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. He is the younger brother. Esau's his older brother. He does two real nasty things to steal the, the rights of the firstborn from um, his brother Esau. He tricks him by, well, he doesn't trick him. He takes advantage of his hunger. He doesn't feed him graciously. He trades the right of the firstborn with his brother in this side deal for a bowl of stew. Now, Esau is not to be commended for that. He should not have done that. However, later in the story, Jacob also uses or uh, partners with his mom to trick his old man, Isaac, who is now blind, into giving him the, the fatherly priestly blessing that belonged to Esau. Esau wants to kill him and Jacob has to run for his life at the behest of his mother. He's going to his mother's brother's house, Laban. Jacob is a trickster. There is nothing in Jacob that you say he deserves God's, <laughs> he deserves God's blessing, right? That's, that's where, and so he comes to this place in the middle of nowhere. He's got a rock for a pillow, which is a, which is a picture in the text for showing us that he's down to nothing. He comes from a very wealthy house. Abraham was wealthy. Isaac was wealthy. Jacob would have been wealthy naturally, but he has to run for his life. So he is broke. He puts a pillow under his head and he has this vision of a ladder up to heaven. It's really like a ziggurat. And he sees a ziggurat going up to heaven. The angels of, the, of, of heaven are going up and down the ladder. And then God stands above him and says, I'm going to bless you. And he wakes up after seeing that dream. And he says, this is, the, this is the house of God. I actually have this point to be made about Bethel. If you want to get stronger in the Lord, as the darkness starts to um, increase in an age of apostasy, you've got to go back to having these things called, I call them awakenings to God. That's what Bethel represents here. Genesis 28 to 16, Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. And he said, and he was afraid. And he said, how awesome is this place? This is another, another, this is none other than the house of God that is Bethel. 
and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called the name of that he called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. This is an important picture because what it is showing us is that you get stronger in the faith when you go back to those places that remind you. Okay, listen here very carefully. Remind you that you don't earn your status before God. You don't earn your way into the family of God. That is God's grace. Jacob did nothing to be blessed. God chose him by his free sovereign will. He was the younger son. He was the trickster, the deceiver, the heel grasper. He was the kid that least deserved it and God gave him great blessings. He actually says, I'm gonna bless you. I'm gonna prosper you. I'm gonna keep you wherever you go. Uh, I'm gonna bring you back to this land. I'll never leave you. And Jacob becomes this amazingly wealthy man to no credit of his own. God blesses those who don't deserve to be blessed. And what do we call that in the New Testament? We call that grace. We call that undeserved favor, unmerited favor. And if you want to be strong in the Lord, I'm telling you, it doesn't make sense naturally. It must make, it makes sense spiritually. You've got to come back to awakening to God's grace in your life because there will be times when you blow it as you're growing up in faith and you've got to come back to the faith. You've got to come back to communion if your church celebrates that regularly. You've got to take the body and blood of the Lord. You've got to receive it by grace and confess your sins to God and just receive again. I eat this bread and this, I drink this cup because of his grace and mercy shown toward me. And that that is the bedrock principle of your growth and your, and your development and your strengthening in an apostate age. Okay? Let's go on to verse 4. And Elijah said to him, Elisha, please stay here for the Lord has sent me to a Jericho. So he's trying to pass him off again because, again, the loner spirit of Elijah. But Elijah says, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. The sons of the prophets who were at Jericho drew near to Elijah and said to him, do you not know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he said, yes, I know. Keep quiet. Now. He's moved on from the house of Bethel, the school of the prophets in Bethel, to the school of the prophets in Jericho. Jericho has tremendous significance in the ancient, in, in, in the biblical text. All you got to do is go back to Joshua chapter six and you read the story of Jericho. And if you watch the VeggieTales video, you've seen this, you know, where the little VeggieTales are marching around the, the, the walls of Jericho. And oh, that song is so great. Keep marching, but you won't knock down our wall. Keep marching, but it isn't going to fall. It's plain to see. Your brains are very small. So keep watching. So keep marching, but you won't knock down our wall. Sorry, that's the best I could sing it, but it's a great little video. My, my first born like I said, uh, was raised in the early 2000s. Those one of those videos are huge and uh, just phenomenal, phenomenal um, exposés on those Bible stories. But anyway, they march around the city of Jericho. But before, before that whole plan happens, that ridiculous plan, right? March around the city seven times, once a day, once a day for seven days, and then seven times on the seventh day, then blow horns and shout, and the walls are going to come down. A crazy military strategy. Nobody would come up with this in their right mind. But it was... The night before the Battle of the Jericho started, that we get the picture of what Jericho is about. And it's the school of, and I call this the school of surrender and consecration. That's what Jericho stands for. So you go to the House of Awakening in Bethel. You go back to the grace of God. Then you go back to Jericho. You, you've got to learn to surrender and consecrate yourselves regularly to God. Jericho, the night before, here's what it says in Joshua chapter 5, verse 13. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with a drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? So I want to know, are you on my side or are you on the side of the Jerichoites? What does God say in verse 14? He says, no. <laughs> I love God's answer there. No, neither. I'm the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I've come. And Joshua fell on his face in the earth, fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what? 
Look at that passage. Oh, I love it. What does my Lord say to his servant? I might be the commander, but you are, but I am your servant, God. This is a powerful phrase from Joshua. Joshua was a military genius. He had beaten the Malachites back. He had beaten Og and Bashan. He had beaten some other small town rivals in the midst of the wilderness as, as, as the people of Israel marched across the wilderness into the promised land. And now he's on the, in the promised land. They've crossed the Jordan. And this is the first of 10 cities that he will conquer. And in spite of all of his great pedigree of being a conquering general, he says, now, what do you want me to do? I surrender. I put my face in the earth and I surrender. Consecration. The commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet. For the place where you're standing is what? Holy. That is another symbol of consecration. I want you to do what I want you to do. And I'm telling you something. And, and by, by the way, just last line there, just so we can get it out there. And Joshua did so. I am going to tell you as firmly as I can that if you want to be powerful in a generation that is getting more and more ungodly, you have got to be more and more surrendered and consecrated to God. On your face, worshiping and saying to God regularly, what do you want me to do? I, I am not going to rely on my past battles and my past victories. I'm not going to act like I'm better than I really am. Today, I need God's grace. What does Jesus say to us in the Lord's Prayer? Give us this day our daily bread. Well, the bread is food, yes, but it's also spiritual food in the word. I need God to tell me what to do today. By the way, go to the end of that prayer and he says, and deliver us from evil. The idea there that if we pray daily for food, we should be praying daily for deliverance from evil. And I have a question for you. Do you do that? Do you pray daily for God to deliver you from evil? Because evil is going to wake up tomorrow morning and wait to get you. And you better pray that God would deliver you from that day's evil or today's evil. And I think we need to do that repeatedly. The Lord's Prayer, I know we don't like rote and repetitious prayers, but pray it. Even if, even if it's not word by word, but thought by thought. You know, you acknowledge that God is in heaven. He sees things from a perspective that you don't have. Um, you uh, surrender to his will. You surrender to his plan. Then you get to give me, give me the food that I need for today. Forgive me my sins as I forgive others. And you pray these general kind of like thought for thought aligned prayers in that order. And then you get to that point. Uh, lead me not into temptation because I know I could go into the temptation. I'm a weak human being and deliver me from evil. And I am, I am asking to be consecrated to you for today, Lord. That is the school of Jericho, surrender and consecration. So house of Bethel, what is that? Where we go back to uh, the fact that God has awakened us. Well, let's go back to here. He has awakened us to his grace. That's the house of Bethel. Then you go to the house of Jericho, surrender and consecration. Let's go on in the text in verse six of second Kings chapter two. Then Elijah said to Elijah said to him, please stay here for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. But he said, as the Lord lives again, Elijah, the loner spirit, as you yourself live, I will not leave you for the two. So the two of them went on 50 of the sons of the prophets also went and stood at some distance from them. And as they were both standing by the Jordan, as they were both standing by the Jordan, then Elijah took his cloak and rolled it up and struck the water and the water parted to the one side and to the other until the two of them could go over on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, ask what I shall do for you before I'm taken from you. And Elisha said, please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And he said, you have asked a hard thing. Yet if you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. Let's take a little bit of time here in this text. Um, first off, he crosses the Jordan. We're going to get to what that is about in, in just a moment. You know what? We're going to get to it right now. <laughs> what does the school of the Jordan teach us? So you've got the school of Bethel awakening to God's grace, the school of Jericho surrender and consecration. What does it, Jordan represent? Spirit empowerment. And this we have to go to the New Testament for Matthew chapter three, 
Verse 16, when Jesus was baptized in the Jordan, he came up out of the water. Behold, the heavens were open. The spirit of God descended on him like a dove coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So he is anointed at his Jordan River baptism, Jesus is, for what? For the works of God, for the anointing that God, for the, for the, uh, the purposes that God has called him to fulfill and to take on the devil. He is anointed to win the battle that Adam couldn't win, that Moses couldn't win, that Joshua couldn't win, that David couldn't win, that Solomon couldn't win, that none of these former great kings and powerful prophets of the Old Testament couldn't win. Ultimately, Jesus alone could win through the spirit anointing on him at the Jordan. And you're going to have to get to that school. <laughs> oh, Christians, listen to me. If you want to be strong in the Lord in the spirit of apostasy, in the spirit of decline, uh, you're going to have to have the Holy Spirit. Okay, so... Let's go back to the text that we were going to dig into now. A couple things that we're seeing here. He goes across the Jordan. What does he do? He, he takes a cloak and he strikes the, the, the Jordan with the cloak. The waters part, they go across. This is a symbol of, you know, what Joshua did with the Israelites. The cloak is a picture of the anointing, the mantle in some Bible translations. He is going to take up the mantle of Elijah. Here's the point, though. He has to go across the Jordan out, out of the land of Israel where the half tribe of Manasseh and Reuben and Gad are, but he's got to get back. <laughs> How are you going to get back? You, you need the anointing to get back. And, and that's why when they go across on dry ground and he's on the other side of the river, he's like, I need a double portion of your spirit. Now, when we, when we think double portion, we think I want twice as much as you have. That's, that's really not what he's saying. Um, contextually, the term double portion is a, refer, is a reference to the rights of the firstborn. In a Jewish household, the firstborn got a double portion, meaning that he basically got everything and then he distributed to the other sons and daughters as he saw fit. That, that was the right of the firstborn. In other words, Elijah is saying to Elijah, I want to be your physical representation in the, spirit, in the spiritual realm. And um, that's why Elijah says, you've asked a hard thing, right? That's what he says here at the end. You've asked a hard thing, but if you see me taken away from you, and this is a picture of the ascension of Christ. It will be done for you. But if you don't see me, it shall not be so. We already talked about this. The Jordan represents spiritual empowerment. And this, this happens. Look at this in 2 Kings 2.11. As they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses separated the two of them. And Elijah went by a whirlwind into heaven. Elijah saw it and he cried, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. Now he took... Then the next, at the end of that verse, verse 12 says, he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. Look at verse 13. Let's lean in here. And he took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. And how does it go? Then he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water saying, where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he had struck the water, the water was parted to the one side and to the other. And Elijah went over. Now, when the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho saw him opposite them, they said, the spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed down to the ground before him. What does Elisha do? And this is so important. I'm going to draw a spiritual principle here for you that most Christians are ignoring when it comes to spiritual empowerment. He takes up the mantle. In taking up the mantle, he does not just take up the anointing. He takes up the responsibility. And the responsibility is I've got to make a way for people to cross over into the plan of God for their life, just as Elijah made that way for me previously in that generation. He struck the water with the mantle, the cloak, and walked over. Now I've got to take up that mantle and own it 
Here's the point. Here's the, here's the spiritual point. It's going to be a pinch, but it's necessary. A lot of people want spiritual anointing, but not spiritual responsibility. They, they, want, they want the flash and the show and the, and the glory and the moments of being used by God publicly, but you don't get used by God publicly until you spend time with God privately. You don't get the anointing just to be a show off. You get the anointing to take care of God's people. This is why Hebrews 13, 7 says, remember your leaders, those who spoke the word of God to you. He says, consider the outcome of life and imitate their faith. Now, remember, I said earlier, you don't imitate them. You imitate their faith. You imitate how they trusted God. That is spiritual responsibility. I need to carry this faith forward for those who are coming behind me. And so many spiritual people, so many Christians, they want the anointing, the glory, the, the show, the celebration, the fame, the importance, but they don't want the spiritual responsibility. Leadership in the church is not about position. It's about taking care of people. It's about spiritual responsibility. And at the end of the day, that's what Elisha uh, embodies here. When he takes up that cloak, he strikes the Jordan and he goes across the water and the prophets see him and they see now they can trust him right? The spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. They can now trust Elisha the way they trusted Elijah. So now Elisha steps into owning these three schools that Elijah started. A lot of responsibility. So the text goes on. Verse 16, they said to him, behold, now there is with your servants, 50 strong men. Please let them go and seek your master. It may be that the spirit of the Lord has caught him up and cast him some mountain or some valley. And he said, you shall not send. Like, don't go. I know you went to heaven. But they urged him until he was ashamed and said, send. So they sent therefore 50 men. And for three days, they sought him, but did not find him. And they came back to him a while after, uh, while he was staying at Jericho. And he said to them, did I not say to you, don't go? So a couple things that the prophets represent here is they're still attached to the older generation. And that's in every generation, that's the case. When there's a spiritual succession, the people who receive the new leader, they are still tied to the former ways and the former means of doing it. And it's just human nature. And they, they want to go and search. <laughs> they go and search for three days for Elijah. They don't find him. And Elijah's like, I told you, I told you he was gone. And this is a new day. And this is a new generation. And we're going to go with it. Now, here comes the responsibility part. Verse 19. He's in Jericho, remember. And it says this. Now the men of the city said to Elisha, behold, the situation of the city is pleasant, but my Lord see, but uh, as my Lord sees, but the water is bad and the land is unfruitful. He said, bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. And they brought it to him. Then he went to the spring of water and, and threw salt in it and said, thus says the Lord, I have healed the water from now on, neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. So the water has been healed to this day, according to the word that Elijah spoke. I don't want to get too detailed here into this text. Number one, because I'm running out of time. But number two, because it gets to, you can get to, um, you know, lost in the weeds with texts like this. It's a picture that Elisha is taking responsibility for the, for the prophets now. Uh, he is, the new bowl is a picture of this is a new season. There's a new carrier for the, God, for, the, for the message of God into this new generation. Salt is a picture, of course, of what Jesus talks about, the salt of the earth. That's who we are. That's why Jesus says, you, not me, you are the salt of the earth. I'm going to put something in you that's going to create you, create in you a preservative and a, and a power and an effectiveness in the world in which you live. And that's exactly what Elisha embodies here in this text. And so he takes ownership and he cares for the people. That is spiritual responsibility. So he's been the rightful successor of Elijah. He's able to bless. Notice that. He's able to bless this unfruitful land with salt and he, it becomes fruitful and a place that is healed. Okay. By the way, it's Jericho, which was cursed by Joshua and rebuilt by one of the kings of Israel. I forget which one we talked about. Who was it? Was it Rahab? Rehoboam? I forget. Anyway, rebuilt by one of the bad kings of Israel. And, and now... 
Elisha is healing that cursed land, but he's also able to curse. Look at the next verse, which is totally crazy. Verse 23, he went up from there to Bethel. So he's kind of making the circuits again. And while he was going up on the way, some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him saying, go up, you bald head, go up, you bald head. <laughs> uh, anyway, and he turned around and when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And the two and two she bears came out of the woods and tore 42 of the boys. From there, he went on to Carmel. And from there, he returned to Samaria. Okay, so what is this? This is a very important proof text for do not make fun of bald headed preachers. <laughs> But secondly, it is a picture that he not only has the power to bless, he has the power to curse because he's God's prophet. He is God's anointed one. Now, Christians, we don't curse. We never curse. Uh, we leave room for God's vengeance. We let the Lord avenge. We do not return reviling with, with curses. We bless. We love our enemies because we are under the new covenant. New covenant ups the ante. Okay, but nonetheless... What you see here is that Elisha has fully embodied taking up the mantle of leadership in prophetic ministry, and he is going to own it. He's going to be responsible for the life of these prophets and the cities in which they dwell. And then he goes up to Samaria, and he is a city boy. Elijah is a country boy. Elisha is a city boy, and he wants to be around the people. Okay, that's, uh, that's all I got time to tell you about that uh, as we go through the text. Let's tap into truth and close out this episode. Uh, number one, and we talked about this right off the jump, which was whoever or whatever you turn to in the midst of distress is your God. Okay. So what are you turning to when things go poorly for you? Money, alcohol, friends, parents, advice, therapy, drugs. What is it? Prescription drugs. If, if you've always got to turn to that, as soon as you feel anxiety, stress, or, or, or you're overwhelmed, that is your God. That is your functional God. Now there's nothing wrong. Well, I don't want to say nothing wrong. Um, the medical industry is not thoroughly bad. <laughs> it's actually very, very good in many respects. It's being co-opted in many respects as well by a godless ideology. However, you can use doctors. Now, God, doctors, some, many doctors, you know, are, are very good. And I would advise you to have a good personal relationship with whatever doctor you have. Um, I would also ask you to ask him his opinion on the vaccines and masks, but that's for another discussion. Anyway, <laughs> friends aren't bad and uh, money isn't bad and parents aren't bad and therapy. I guess there's usefulness somewhere to that. However, if that's what you turn to ultimately, it's your God. So why do you turn to those things? Is there not a God in Israel? That's what I need to ask some of you. Is there not a God in this nation that isn't there not a God in the universe? Is there not a God living inside of you that you can turn to, that you can pray to, right? Deliver me from evil, Lord. Praying it daily. You're in a spiritual fight for your life. We wrestle not against spirit, uh, flesh and blood, but against the principalities, spiritual forces, witnesses in the heavenly places. Ephesians chapter six, verse 12. So you've got to turn there. Um, the question that I have for you is, why would you turn to any, everything else but God? Some of you, that's where you are. Medicine is good, but it's not God. Friends are good, but not God. Education is good, but not God. Pleasure is good, but it's not God. And it will ultimately, ultimately um, let you down. You have a God who is for you. Root yourself in him. Uh, get alone with him. Get in your prayer closet with the Lord and cast your cares and your burdens upon him, right? Do not be anxious for anything, but prayer, supplication, thanksgiving. Make your request known to God, Philippians 4. Uh, and the peace of God will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus, right? Secondly, instead of being like the world or seeking to be like the world, seek to be trained in godliness. And that is what Elisha represents in 2 Kings 2. He is living in an apostate culture, an apostate generation, and yet he cannot separate. He will not separate from Elijah. He is longing to be trained. 
I said this earlier and I'll say it again. Some of you young Christians, you've got to go and find your mentor because your mentor will not come find you. You got to come and tell them, I want you to train me. I need to know what you know. I need to find out what you, what you've come to find out. Please. I want to be your spiritual son or your spiritual daughter, you know, phrase it in your own way, but you've got to find a mentor. You got to find somebody who will lead you toward godliness because that is most definitely what you need in an age of apostasy. Um, so I had this thought as well uh, from Warren Wearsby, uh, his commentary in this text. It says, it takes more than a ballot to make a leader. That's A.W. Tozer quote. And I would say this for those of you who are looking to be leaders in your generation. It takes more than talent, personality, ability, charisma, intelligence, and popularity. You need the anointing of God. You need the Holy Spirit to come upon you. You need to go to the school of Bethel, the school of God's grace. You're saved by grace not through faith, not through works. Uh, you go to Jericho, you surrender. God, not my will, but yours be done. What, you want, what do you want for my life? I give you my future. I give you my future spouse. I give you my future children. I give you my, my house, my money, everything. That, Lord, I don't know what's going on right now, but I give you this today. Surrender. Consecration. Jericho. And then you go to the school of the Jericho River where you get the anointing. And I believe that God sends his spirit on surrendered saints. God sends his spirit on surrendered saints. So let's talk about the school of ministry and then close this out. Let's just sum up what we've talked about already. Number one, the school of ministry understands the world is going to get darker. Jesus said, by the way, that because of the increase of lawlessness, this is Matthew chapter 24, the love of many will grow cold. The love of most, actually. Um, the, he says that many are called, but few are chosen, right? He says that wide is the path of destruction, but, and, and many enter therein, but few enter into the narrow gate. So Christians, true Christianity is always going to be a vast minority, true Christianity. Cultural Christianity, again, culture's not going to have a problem with that. They're going to love that. They're going to celebrate that. Anybody loves that. But true Christianity, you're going to be a vast minority and you're going to have to learn that it's going to get darker. And the closer that we get to Jesus Christ's return, the darker the world gets. We should not be. We should not be taken aback by what we see happening in the world today. We should be like, okay, this is exactly what Jesus said is going to happen. Where is he coming? He's coming back anytime now, any moment. Jesus is going to be here now, right? I remember that meme that was floating around during the COVID, uh, the height of the COVID craziness is, what chapter of Revelation are we doing today? I mean, that's, that's kind of how it's felt for the last three, uh, three years or so. So the school of ministry understands the world's going to get darker. But school of ministry, a heartfelt burning to, decide, to, burning to be closer to God. That Elisha, I will not let you go mentality. Number three, reawakening to the gospel regularly. That's Bethel. Consecrated and surrendered continually. That's Jericho. And Holy Spirit anointed. That's Jordan River uh, uh, school uh, anointing. Verse, uh, and then number six, embracing the new day and not stuck in the old ways. You do not have to be like those who led you in the faith, you, but you have to imitate their faith. And then take responsibility for what God gives you. And if you want to enter into the school of ministry, I cannot, I cannot understate this, overstate this. I keep getting those mixed up. I cannot overstate this. You're going to have to find people that can lead you in this place. I hope that this channel actually is that for you. And subscribe if you would. There you go. Subscribe, plus press the subscribe button and the, click the notification bell. You need mentors. And I love to be a digital mentor to you. And I hope that you absorb this content. But don't let the world squash your fire for God. You go after God. You go back to those places of grace. You go back to that surrendered place. You go back to that spirit anointed place. You get that, be filled with the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 518. Um, the, the, the text is in the present perfect, which means keep on being filled with the Holy Spirit. It's not a one and done deal. You need a regularly, you need the Holy Spirit to regularly fall upon you and anoint you again and again and again. And then be prepared to embrace new ways to do it and then take responsibility for what God gives you. Amen. That is the show. Long episode. Sorry. But anyway, hopefully it was a helpful episode. 
Uh, I love bringing this content to you. I would really appreciate it if you'd support it. Cash app, Tim Hatch Live or timhatchlive.com slash support. So glad that you support me, those of you who do, and I am uh, always pleased to bring it to you. Like this uh, video to help the algorithm, share this content on your social media, and subscribe, as we like to say always. And the next time we will be together on this channel is Tuesday night at 7.30 for The Deep End. The Deep End, where we talk about news and politics and the culture of the day, and The Deep Dive, which is tonight, which is where we're talking about the Bible verse by verse. We're two, we're two chapters into Second Kings, and hopefully within the next 12 weeks or so, we can close out this study of the Kings of Compromise. Other than that, God bless you guys. Have a great night in Jesus' name.